they say that your frontal lobe is not fully developed, the part of your brain that's responsible for discernment and decision-making, until you're 25 years old. Which I can tell you in my case, that was very true. 19-year-old Brian was sitting in his dorm room at Eastern University. Now, it had been raining. It had been raining hard, like hard, hard. And it hadn't stopped for 24 straight hours. It is the most water I have ever seen in my entire life. Now, I was sitting in my room when a few of my hallmates came in and told me that the eastern stream, the quiet, peaceful, calm stream that ran through the middle of our campus had become a raging torrent. And we had to decide what to do with this information. And we all agreed unanimously, we have to ride this somehow. We have no idea how, but we have to ride this thing as best we can. So we did a little sniffing around. Nobody, of course, had any boats or rafts. But one kid on the hall had a boogie board. And we thought, we can do this. This can work. This can work. This is the picture of the tour, the, the tire. This, I, we actually took pictures. Now, this was at the dawn of the digital age at the, so these are not the best, most high resolution, but we do have pictures of this torrent. You can take a look at them here. So this is on the bridge right before we went down. It is, it is absolutely, uh, I can't even, it, it, it's nothing like if anything, other than going to like a rapids, right? Like actually paying and going to a rapids. But this was right down the middle of our campus. And we said, we've got to, we got to do this. So we got our little boogie board and we went up to the top of campus right where it began and I said, you know what guys? I'll go first. I'll show you how it's done. And they were like, all right, Brian, you do it. So, you know, one, and you know, it took me a little bit, but finally I, I, I had enough nerve and in I jumped. Now, like many of these types of stories, the beginning went great. I mean, I was having a blast. I was going down these things. I was having a fun. And then it dawns on me about a quarter of the way down that this stream has a waterfall in it in the middle of campus. Now, I'm not talking Niagara Falls, but it was significant enough that I realized I had made a grave mistake. This was bad. Now, I reach, I reach the falls, and I think maybe, you know, maybe I can just like, you know, like, like in the movies, maybe I'll, just, I'll fly right over and land and I'll go. No such, as soon as I went over, that boogie board went flying, and I hit the water, and I began hitting the rocks like a pinball machine. I mean, I was going left and right. It was taking me wherever it wanted to take me, and so the, soon the very uh, force of the water began to pull me actually under the water. And I, this is not hyperbole to say that this was the one time in my life I really did fear I was going to die. I, I really did think, like, this was it. I mean, I was getting smashed all over the place. I was getting sent even faster down the rapids at this point. I couldn't, I couldn't see anything. It was in the dark. I was getting pulled under the water. And I, I really did think, like, I don't know what we're going to tell my mother <laughs> when they have to make that, that phone call. Well, we get to this very bridge right here. We took this after the fact, but we get to this very bridge. I see the bridge coming, and I know it's probably the last big marker before we go off campus, and I've never seen 
where the stream goes after you get off campus. So I have no idea what's in store for me. I see this bridge, and I go, this is my last shot. And so I reach out my hands. I think to myself, if I can only, if I can grab this bridge and somehow pull myself up, I, th I think I might be able to escape from this thing. But as you can see, the water was so high at that point that it was basically at the bottom of the bridge already. So I get to it, and I grab on, but the force of the water pulls me under the bridge, and I am prostrate under the bridge, holding on for dear life, still hanging on for dear life, as the water sweeps me under, and I'm like flat, holding on to this thing underwater. So I'm holding on this thing as best I can. I'm thinking, here we go. Like, I, I don't know, if I let go, I don't know where I'm going to go next. And it was in that moment that I felt the arms and the hands of a few of those hallmates who had been running down the banks with me jump onto this bridge, grab my arms, grab my hands, and pull me back over the bridge. We actually have a picture of it here. This is me the moments after uh, moments after they had, I'm in white there, moments after they had poured, you can see the water coming over the bridge at this point, pulling me up. The question I have is, who's taking that picture, and why wasn't that guy helping? That's what I want to know for all these times. Who's the guy being like, oh, this is awesome, right? Like, now, afterwards, my legs and my feet were all cut up. I was bruised, but it was a story that we'll remember. But it was a warning, it was something I learned. I learned a very important lesson that day. It was a warning. It was that water is powerful. Water is actually really, really powerful and dangerous. And you don't want to get in its way. You don't want to get in it. When the rains come down and the floods come up, you don't want to be in its Way. Well, today is a, another warning of such. This, like I said, this is the end of the sermon uh, series. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is landing the plane of this sermon, and he ends it very much in a good pastor, preacher type of way. Usually at the end of, of these, uh, of these uh, types of sermons, right, you would think the preacher is going to put it all together and land the plane and close with an application. And that's actually what Jesus did, does. He gives us actually four of these illustrations, four of these warnings, these pictures that closes out everything he's been talking about in the message before. Some of your Bibles might even have a heading that calls it the four warnings. The four warnings. See, Jesus has dealt with harboring anger and desiring self-pleasure, and hating our enemies, and seeking self-recognition, and hoarding, and passing judgment. And now we get to the end, and he gives these four warnings that all point to one question. There's one question that Jesus is going to ask again and again in these four warnings, and it's, what are you going to do? I've talked about all these things. I've gone over all of this ways in which we live into this new rhythm, this new reality, this kingdom of God. And now, what are you going to do about it? The word to do in the original language is repeated over and over again in this section. The word to do, or the, the verb to do, is found in verse 17, 18, 19, 21, 22, 24, 26, again and again, 
What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Now, it's translated in different ways because I just think the translator probably got bored of writing to do. So he'll translate it sometimes as produce or to put into practice, things like that. But it's the same word repeated again and again and again. A warning. It's nice that you heard, but what are you going to do? Now today, I want to focus, we could focus and spend a whole sermon on each one of these four illustrations, but I want to focus on one today. And likely it's the most well-known one. We have a kid's song attributed to it, and it's about a wise and foolish builder. Now to really understand and appreciate what's happening in this little illustration, this little warning at the end, I think we need to know a little bit about Israel's geography. So we're going to talk a little bit about what this meant to them when they heard this little story. So this is a topography map of Israel. I want to show this to you. This is kind of how the land kind of moves and is anchored here in, uh, in, in Israel. This is going to give us some insight into what it meant when they heard about this story. So to the west in Jerusalem, by the Mediterranean Sea, this is what they call the coastal plains. Take a look. We'll highlight it here for you. This is the coastal plains of Israel. Very beautiful, very fertile land. Uh, this is where a lot of their farming happened. And so when you hear about like the coast or, or coastal lands, the Bible will sometimes talk about this. This is, what, this is sort of the, the general area where they're talking about. So you have first, you have the coastal plains of Israel. But the next, right in the middle of the country, and you're going to see it, see it outlined there in that white, right in the middle of, that, uh, uh, of the country is the mountain region. This is where Jerusalem is. And again, if you can see kind of the topography, you can see how it goes up. It gets darker as it goes because this is where the mountains are, the mountain region of Israel. And then finally, to the east and to the south of this mountain region is what we call the wilderness, there are two major wildernesses in Israel. To the south there, in the south, is the Negev, the Negev wilderness. Uh, there's lots of things that happened in the Negev wilderness. Abraham, Israel's wandering, Elijah, all of their ministries happened in the Negev. That's the south part of Israel. In that little skinny area to the east, that's what they call the Judah or the Judean wilderness. This is where John the Baptist had his ministry. This is where David hid from Saul. And one chapter before the Sermon on the Mount, this is where Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. And that little tiny strip of land east of the mountains in the Judah or the Judean wilderness. Now the wilderness was the land of the shepherd. The coastal plains and even in the mountain areas, that's where you farmed. That's where you did all your farming. It's where you produce a lot of things, a lot of um, uh, fruits particularly, a lot of nectars in that area. And they called this nectar honey. So this is where you had the, your honey. You had it in the coastal plains. You had it in the mountain areas. But then in the desert, that's where the shepherds lived because they didn't want the sheep eating the honey. So you, you, keep, them out in the, you keep them out in the desert. And, and this is where, and goats are, and, and sheep are what produced milk. This is why Israel is called the land of milk and honey is because this is an area that can produce and can, can keep both things at the same time, which is why this land was very valuable. It's because you had the coastal plains, you had up in the mountains where you can grow your honey, 
And you also have the wilderness area where the shepherds lived. And that's where the sheep went. That's where you got your milk. It's the land of milk and honey. So this is the land. The wilderness area is the land of the shepherd. Now, if I were to ask you, what, for those shepherds, what is the biggest danger in those deserts? What would you guess? Perhaps you'd say heat exhaustion or dehydration or for some fierce animal that was coming. But believe it or not, the most dangerous thing in those deserts there are floods. Floods are the most dangerous thing in that area, even though those areas only get two to four inches of rain every single year. Those highlighted areas only get about two to four inches of rain every single year, and yet it's the floods that is always the most dangerous in those areas. How could that be? Well, the reason that it happens is because the mountain areas, as you see, they do get a lot of rain. They get roughly 26 to 32 inches of rain every year, which is just a tick under what we average here in Buffalo. So they get plenty of rain up in the mountain areas. See, what happens is, if you see the map, moist air comes off the Mediterranean Sea, and it's at a higher elevation. The Mediterranean Sea is much higher, and it kind of slopes down towards those mountains. So it kind of skips over the coastal plains, but then it hits the mountains, And all that moisture hits the mountains and begins to dump all sorts of rain right there in the mountains. It's actually the same effect we have here in Buffalo in the snow belt. We have moist air, right, that comes off Lake Erie. And if you're in a certain area, particularly in the south, in the south towns, uh, there is a dump of water. For us, it's snow. But there's a dump of water that comes. It comes off the It comes off Erie, Lake Erie, and it dumps right in a particular place. It's the same phenomenon that happens here, although they don't have zero-degree weather, and so it's in the form of rain. But these mountains, they get rain, and when it rains, it rains. And there's, there's, there's water, there's a dry and kind of water season. So particularly in the rainy season too, it will rain at a clip. You won't even believe that moisture will hit, the, will come off that Mediterranean, hit those mountains, and it will just pour there. Now what happens is, is when it rains, the mountains can't retain all that water all at once. The mountains are limestone covered in a soil that doesn't absorb water easily. So an unbelievable amount of water comes rushing down the sides and a majority of it charging down to the east, to the Judah wilderness, and to the south in the Negev. And as time goes on, this, this unbelievable amount of charging water began to cut caverns into the sides of the mountains as it started heading down. And so now there's these dry, steep, sharp riverbeds that we call wadis. Wadis. Here, take a look. There's a picture of it here I want to show you. Uh, A wadi is is these caverns on the sides of the mountain, on the east side and on the south side of the mountain areas, is that when it rains at the top, this unbelievable amount of water will rush, and you can see the boulders that have been pushed aside as this water comes crashing down and moves and just absolutely destroys everything in its path. You don't want to be in a wadi when it begins to flood, and everybody in that area would have known that. If you're going to be in the desert, don't be in a wadi. 
I actually want to show you a video from the area because this same phenomenon actually happens today. There's, it's no different today than it was. Their, their geography hasn't changed. So here's actually a video from Qumran, which is in the Judean wilderness. It's very close to the, to the Dead Sea uh, in Qumran. This is the start of a wadi coming. Notice it's not raining there, right? Because the rain doesn't happen there. The rain has happened 20 miles somewhere else. And then all of a sudden, we'll take a look. think of the desert, we tend to think of something like the Sahara Desert, right? So when we talk wilderness, when we say the, the Judean wilderness, when we say like the Negev wilderness, we are thinking, okay, like the Sierra. I just, I actually Googled desert today, and this is what pulled up. When, when you Google desert, when you think, this is what you think of, right? The, this vast uh, uh, array of sand everywhere. This is, this is what a desert to us or a wilderness to us looks like. But the wilderness in Israel is not sandy, it's rocky. There's very little sand actually in any of these wildernesses. It's just not like the Sahara. It, it's, it's rocky, it's stony, it's, it's mountainous. That's what the wilderness looked like back in. But there is one place in Israel where there is sand, a collection of sand. And that place is at the bottom of a wadi. And the reason is, is because every time that water comes charging through, it rubs and erodes that limestone away. And over time, a small bed of sand begins to develop down into those wadis. It's the only place where there's actually sand at the bottom of a wadi. Now, with all of that understanding, let's go back to the text now and try to understand what's being said. Let's consider the warning. A foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? He built it on the sand. Now again, if you're in that area, in that time, in that place, you know where that is because there's no other sand other than a small place up in the, right on the sea, uh, right on the Mediterranean Sea. There's no other place that there is sand. So Jesus says, a, a foolish man built his house on the sand, you would have chuckled. You'd be like, yeah, that is foolish. You, you, don't, you don't build a house in a wadi, because what happens? The rains come down and the floods come up. That's what happens, right? It says the, it rises, the waters rise, the floods come, and what happens to the house? It gets washed away. It comes down, the text says, with a great crash, where the song will say, and the house on the sand went splat. Right? Now, think about that. The, what happened to the house? Did the foundation crack? Did it start to lean? Was it slowly sinking? No. It crashed. That torrent came. 
the rains came down, the floods came up, and crash. It fell with a great crash, and the house and the sand went splat because they're in the path of the tidal wave that's coming. Whereas the wise man, he builds his house on the rock, which is above at the top. He knows he's not going to build his house in the wadi. You see, let let me offer you a a suggestion. I I think that the problem with uh, with this illustration, the problem with this warning, isn't about the foundation. It's about the location. See, I've been picking my brother's brain. He's actually an engineer. I've been picking his brain about this all week. I've heard from him and from others that building on sand, sand is actually a fairly decent foundation to build on. It packs well, it drains well. There's really no problem. All of Florida is built on sand. The problem isn't the foundation, it's the location. Now, we sing, on Christ the solid rock I sand, all other ground is sinking sand. And trust me, friends, I believe that with my, I sing that, I sing that just as passionately as you do. I believe that with all my heart. But the problem isn't that the sand is sinking. The problem is that the house is built in a flood zone. It's placed right in the eyes of danger, right square in the middle where a flood could come at any moment and wash it away. It's about where it's positioned itself right on the oncoming tidal wave that will eventually knock it down. When Jesus said that the foolish man builds on his house on the sand, I, again, I imagine the crowd chuckling to themselves. Of course you don't build a house there. Who would build a house in a wadi? But there are reasons why you might. Again, take a look at the picture here. When it's not flooding, it actually looks kind of attractive. There's vegetation that grows up because of that moisture that comes and goes and comes and goes. And vegetation in the area will spring up quickly. There's, there's greenery. There's vegetation. And when you're in that bland, rocky desert and all of a sudden you come across some, some, something that's green, man, that's, that's attractive. It's shady down there a lot of the time. It's cooler, shadier, green. There's one other thing that happens. When those floods eventually recede, it leaves behind pools of water. And these pools of water are very attractive to wanderers and shepherds and sheep. These beautiful pools that will develop on the riverbed there and stay there for a while because it's so cool and natural right there. So it looks wonderful when you're there. This idyllic and peaceful scene is very attractive, but if it's raining 20 miles away up in the mountains, there won't be much time until the typhoon comes cascading down and washes away everything in its path. In fact, in those days, the shepherds had a term for water that was safe. They had a term for water that wasn't dangerous, water that wasn't from a wadi, Water that could lead their sheep to sa- and, and have them drink safely. They'd say, hey, have you found any still water? Or quiet water is what they would call it. 
because they would warn each other. They'd say, and, and they would know pretty much well, but they would see these, they'd see these, beautiful, these green, uh, beautiful, shady areas with pools of water, and it would be so tempting to bring your sheep down to let them cool down and drink from the waters, but that water is dangerous because you don't know when the next flood is about to hit. And so these shepherds, these Bedouin, they'd call it, they'd say, that's not still water. We need, to, we need to find quiet or still water. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still water, quiet water. See, the shepherd knows the water that it's safe for his sheep. The shepherd knows the water that came from a wadi and the shepherd that we can go and drink and be safe. We, we have a shepherd, a good shepherd, that will lead us to places that will bring us life and not bring us death. Let's call the band up as we put this all together. Let's put this all together, shall we? Now, at the beginning of this series... I quoted one scholar who said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is a calling to a radically new lifestyle in conscious distinction from the norms of the rest of society. A radically different lifestyle that is distinct from the norms of the rest of the society. Because friends, our world is full of wadis. Our world is full of things that look good to the eyes, ways to drink up life, and people in places to build our house, the house of our life, upon. There are wadis around every turn as people who live in the wilderness waiting, waiting to go home. Life is a wilderness. The Bible paints that picture of a wilderness survival as we make our way to the promised land but we have a good shepherd that will show us the way. We have a good shepherd who will point out the waters that are safe. And in this sermon, Jesus has warned us of the wadis of harboring anger and desiring self-pleasure and hating our enemies and seeking self-recognition and hoarding and passing judgment, among other things. And these floods, these wadis, they might not flood today, they might not flood today. Because that's the whole thing with a wadi, is they're deceptive. It could be beautiful, not a cloud in the sky, not raining, and you have no idea that you are minutes away from the water rushing in. The flood might not come today. The anger that you've been harboring might not spill out today. And you might not act on those websites today. And you might not notice the hate and judgment that's building up inside of you today. And you might not realize you're self-centered and attention-seeking today. But you're building a house in a wadi. You're building your house in a wadi. And it looks good. And everything's fine. Look at this water. Look at this vegetation. Look, look at this shade. It's, it's beautiful here. And it might not come today. 
it might not come tomorrow. But it's coming. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. So the question Jesus asks you is what are you going to do? And he doesn't mix words here. If you read the whole passage, what are you going to do? And the answer isn't try harder. A lot of times we come to these ends of these things and we go, you know what? Yeah, I feel, I feel convicted. And, uh, you know, I'm gonna, starting tomorrow, I'm just going to do my best to be better, to be better at this thing. But we will never muster the willpower to simply try harder. Our sin and our depravity, it's too great. We walk away from these things and we go, I'm just, I'm just going to do better and I'm going to try harder and, and you're absolutely right and God's word is it's, it's true. So I'm just going to do better. I'm just going to do better with this. I'm going to make it. And it's not going to work. So what we need is a good shepherd who will lead us to still water who will open our eyes and say, no, 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 not that. That's going to kill you. That anger, it's going to kill you. That frustration and bitterness. It might not spill over today. In fact, it probably won't today. But a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, that bitterness is going to kill you. You can't build a house there. You can't build a house with a computer in your basement. You can't build a house there. That's not safe. You can't build a house around that group of people anymore. What are you going to do not just what I want to try harder at. What are you going to do? Where are you going to be obedient to, to your good shepherd to say, I, that group of people brings out the worst in me. And so I'm not just going to try harder to be better when I'm with that. I'm going to cut that out of my life. I will no longer build my house there because that is a wadi and it's dangerous and it's going to kill me. And I can't build a wadi of anger and judgment. And so what will the good shepherd tell me to do? He'll say, you actually need to go and do, you need to go and ask for forgiveness. And that will seem crazy to you. And all of your friends will tell you, you don't need to. And your good shepherd will say, if you hang on to this, it's going to kill you. And you can't build your house outside of generosity because you will always find something else you can buy. And the good shepherd will say, you, you, you got to do something about this. You have to be radically generous to guard your heart from all the hoarding and the, and, the, and the stuff and the materialism in your life. There's something you actually have to do and not just try harder at. That wadi will kill you. Don't drink that water. Here, come over here to this one. Come over to the waters of generosity. Come over to the waters of seeking forgiveness. Come in over the water of getting rid of that computer. 
Come, come over to the water where you're actually doing something, and I will show you because you won't be able to do this on your own. You won't be able to do this on your own, but I am your good shepherd. And you won't know what's a wadi and what's not. You won't know what still water is and what's not, but I do. And if you follow me, I'll bring you life. So friends, what are you going to do? Where's the good shepherd right now whispering in your ear and saying, you know what he's talking about. You know. So what is it you're going to do? Let's pray. God, I'm never going to see the wadis. If it were up to me, I'd be drinking those dangerous waters every day until that flood rushed me away. I am the foolish builder building my life in flood zones. And I need someone to show me a different way. I'm a dumb sheep and I need a shepherd to lead me to still waters. Lord, show me, even in this moment, what is the thing I need to do what still water are you leading me to that I have been resistant for a long time and I finally have to do it? Because if I don't, it might not happen today and it might not happen tomorrow, but eventually it will kill my soul. Show us, God. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of it. And help us to continually Nip at your, at your feet as your sheep as you lead us in this wilderness of life. We love you, Jesus. Amen.